Thank you, music team. If you would, uh, let's open up our Bibles to Romans. Um, if you're new, Romans is in the, uh, the New Testament. So it's right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then we're in Romans. And I'm going to begin by reading our passage this morning, which is going to come out of the first chapter of Romans, and we're going to read from verses 8 down to verse 15. And that's where we'll spend our time of study. Apostle Paul writes under divine inspiration, and he says to the church in Rome, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. This week as I was studying this passage, I was struck um, by what Paul focuses on. Not so much that he um, is praying and, and that he's giving thanks to God. That's really not uncommon, even uh, for Paul's letters. Most of his letters begin this way, where he, he wants to commend his readers. But what struck me was the basis of his thanks and the longing that he has to see these believers. Notice that he says throughout this passage he speaks about their faith. What we see here is that the Apostle Paul values faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the, the basis of his thanks for them. That is the longing, or at least the reason he longs to see them, is because he says, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. What we're going to see here is that Paul makes a lot about faith in this introduction. But as I was uh, considering here, I was thinking about how, how Paul and, and kind of how I coined this, it seems that he's valuing or, or treasuring faith itself. I, I began to think, would I, if I made a list of the things that I treasure, the things that I find precious, the things that I value, would I put faith on that list? I don't think I would have done it, at least in the way that I think Paul's doing it here. I might say I, I value the gospel. I think Hopefully we'd all say that. We value the gospel. We, we value uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, we value the scriptures. Maybe we would turn to other people. I value the Dillmans. Good to see you all here this morning. <laughs> um, and, and I see uh, uh, my family. I value my family. I might look to character qualities and say I value integrity or I and value um, trustworthiness. But I don't think if I were to put on my list, I'd say I value the faith of other believers. It's kind of a unique 
thing that Paul says here. We might say, oh, I value faith, speaking of my personal walk with Christ. But would you say, I value the faith that is on display at Oak Park Baptist Church Sunday after Sunday? I value the faith of, 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 that is being expressed in other like-minded churches, faithfully preaching the gospel and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. I thank God for their faith. When we think about what is going on around the world and how even in much more difficult places to be a Christian, their Christianity is flourishing and people are believing the gospel, do we say, I thank you for their faith? I'm not sure that I would. I, I'll leave that to you to answer that question for yourself. But faith is a major theme in the book of Romans. And we're going to see this over and over again. And so it's not surprising that here in the introduction that he, he, he kind of litters this passage with faith. In fact, when we began this um, journey through Romans, which hasn't been long, it's only been one sermon. Um, but two weeks ago, I, I showed you that the goal of Paul's ministry is found in verse 5 where he says that, that through whom, meaning Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That is Paul's goal. That is what he hopes to accomplish when he preaches the gospel, that the obedience of faith would, would sprout up. And last time we, we looked at, I, I argued that this is a faith that expresses itself in heartfelt obedience to Christ. If you jump over to verses 16 through 17, Paul emphasizes faith even here. He, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, there's faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's kind of an interesting phrase right there. We'll have to look at that next week. But what I want you to see is that he treasures the faith that the gospel produces. He treasures it. He values it. He doesn't take it for granted. And so this morning, I, I want to press us. I want us to consider, do I value not only my faith in Christ, but do I value the fact that others in this room believe? Do I treasure that? Am I thankful for it? Does it encourage me? And so this morning, I want us to consider that, like Paul has here. And what we're going to see is that for, for Paul, their faith is a means by which he gives thanks to God. Their faith is the means by which he's going to be mutually encouraged by them. And it is faith that is eagerly producing him a desire to preach the gospel. And so that's what I want to, to press in our lives this morning as we consider verses 8 through 15, how does valuing faith translate in our lives? And so if I'm going to kind of make the, the outline for you, those are taking notes. Valuing faith, like Paul does here, is going to increase, number one, our thankfulness to God, our encouragement among one another, and our eagerness to proclaim the gospel. So there it is. Faith, valuing faith, increases our thankfulness to God, encouragement among one another, and our eagerness to proclaim the gospel. Let's consider this first one. Our thankfulness to God. 
We see here, Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul's expressing a deep gratitude, an overwhelming sense of thankfulness to God on behalf of these believers. And in fact, these believers he's never even met yet. He has not met them. He is, he is writing them to tell them, I am on my way. But yet he can say, I am thankful for you. But I want you to see his devotion here, his piety, his, his commitment to the Lord. Things that we might easily jump over just to get to your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I want you to notice that he, the object of his thanks, yes, is these are these believers, but he is thanking God. His, his thanks are directed vertically. He's not thanking them for believing. He's thanking God that they believe. Now, we just heard a couple of testimonies this morning from Ellis and Elliot. It would be kind of weird, I think, to go up to them and say, I am so thankful that you believe. I'm thankful that you chose to believe. They might say, well, yeah, I, I did. I, I believed. I trusted Christ. Here's how it was. But I thank God that I believe, right? We, we, maybe as you were hearing their testimony, you, you were thinking, amen. Maybe you, you burst forth in, in some sense of, of, of thankfulness and gratitude to God on, on their behalf. Thank you, Lord, for, for doing a work. Thank you for giving them and placing them in a place in their life where they would hear the gospel whether it was at a young age for Ellis or, or later in teenage years for Elliot at camp. Lord, we, we recognize, Lord, you're doing all sorts of things and you're using instruments of your grace, ministers and parents. Lord, thank you. And not only that, that when they heard it, they believed. Paul values faith and he recognizes its origin comes from God himself. And he's very particular in his language. He says, not only do I thank my God for you, but I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Paul is completely consumed by his relationship to Jesus Christ. He understands, he grasps the reality that Jesus is the only way to the Father. We sometimes don't even think about that, uh, we, um, at least maybe in this, this precision. We might flippantly pray to God, say, thank you, God, for this meal. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Or, dear Lord, help me today. But Paul's very deliberate, probably even trying to instruct us in how to pray in some manner. Now, we come to the Father on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. We come through him. And so it may look like this when we pray that we should say, Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you. When we say, In Jesus' name, there is meaning behind that because we need a representative to bring us to his throne room. And so he says, When I think of you, believers, I thank my God for you, but I do it through Jesus Christ. Now we come to the basis for his thanksgiving. We see it there. He's thankful because their faith is proclaimed in the whole world. Now, Paul is speaking, in some sense, an exaggeration. He's not lying, but 
the whole world. He hadn't even gotten to Spain yet, and that's where he's trying to get to, uh, to reach people with the gospel. What he's trying to say here is in the whole world in the sense that all the church knows about your faith. And that's, that would be a pretty encouraging commendation, wouldn't it? I'm, I'm often encouraged when I, I uh, visit, um, you know, go across the river. Maybe I'm on the seminary campus and, and I, I come in contact with um, a professor or, or somebody who says, hey, I want you to let you know that I hear great things going on at Oak Park. And I'm like, how do you know what's going on? And usually they've talked to somebody or they've just heard through kind of the, the grapevine. I don't know all the details, but that's encouraging. Well, Paul says, well, it's not just this town up the road. Everybody from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, all the churches in Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey for us, all the churches are talking about the fact that there is a church in Rome. They're overwhelmed, and they're rejoicing in the fact that your faith, or that you have come to faith. Now, we're not entirely sure how the gospel, though, arrived in Rome. I already told you that Paul does not know the Romans personally yet. In fact, none of the apostles, to our knowledge, have, have made it to Rome at this time, or at least before they became a church and, and became Christians. The only thing that we're told of is in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. This is right after the Holy Spirit has come down and, and, and like a rushing wind come upon 120 believers in a, in a room upstairs hiding for fear of their lives. They come out of these doors and, and Luke tells us that many Jews and proselytes, those are, are Gentile converts to Judaism, had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, and he, and he lists from all the places they come, and we see that there are some who came from Rome. And so it may have been that those who'd come from Rome for, to, to celebrate Pentecost heard the gospel for the first time as Peter preached Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that he is both Lord and Christ, and called them to repentance and faith, that these Roman Jews came to faith, and then they went back to Rome, and they shared their faith, and the church sprouted up. You sometimes think, oh, Christianity was spreading because you had these super apostles. That they could heal, they, could, they were inspired, they were eloquent preachers and teachers. No, these, here are believers who are just a few months old and they're going back to Rome. It's like New York, New York City. We think of that as like, ground, you better have your A game to go in there and share the gospel. Or Los Angeles. How, how are such inadequate people going to do anything there? But Paul says, we've all heard about what the Lord has done through you. People were talking and people were excited about the fact that in Rome, the center of the known world, where the imperial cult, you know what the imperial cult was? Caesar is God, and everyone must worship him. You can worship your God, but just know that Caesar is the prime God. And in that type of environment, 
their faith was flourishing. And this was a sign that God was at work and the spread of Jesus' name was accelerating. So he is thankful. He values faith. There's faith in Rome. This is why we like to have Ellis and Elliot come forward and give their testimony. We'll probably have another one next Sunday. And we do this because we want to celebrate the very fact that God is saving people. Maybe he didn't do that in our midst, but he's doing things all around the world. And whatever reason, some people have come here, hey, they have believed this same gospel that we believe. Certainly when we do have people come to faith and and, and they are baptized, we have them come forward and, and profess publicly their faith in Jesus Christ so that we could hear, oh, how God is working in our midst and outside these walls. When I look out here, I I look and I see stories of God's grace. We could spend all kinds of time uh, rehashing each other's faith and how we came to know the Lord, but one in particular individual came to my mind this week, and that's uh, Chris Tyler. Chris Tyler serves as a in our uh, children's ministry on Wednesday nights with our kids. He, he helps my daughters memorize their Bible verses. But a little over a year ago, Chris came forward and, and shared his testimony. Maybe you remember that day, and he talked about how he was watching uh, on TV one of those shows that kind of is telling the story of the Bible. And he shared the fact that when he was watching the show, he came down to kind of do it in a mocking way or, or at least uh, skeptical to, to see what ridiculousness there was going to be on this show and just see how silly Christianity was. Well, long story short was that he ended up hearing the story of the gospel and he believed. And that is good news. And we thank God for that. And that's just one story. And so that is what Paul is talking about here. People have come to faith in Christ and he is overwhelmed with joy. And so whether your story is one of forsaking gross sin and rebellion in order to follow Christ, or you were brought up in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you had believing parents, You believed at a young age. Whatever the category, whatever the story is, here's the amazing thing. Both of you were dead in your sins and had hard hearts of stone that God softened. And you believed. And you believed. And so whatever the story, whatever the route, God was at work, and we rejoice in that, and we want to value faith. Because some don't believe, do they? And some of us have heavy hearts, right? We have heavy hearts because why was it that this child raised up in the church believed and this child did not? Why is it that this individual outside the church believed and that one did not? We're not given those answers. Scriptures don't tell us. But what we do know is that when we're true of ourselves, when we think about our own salvation, we know on that day when we stand before our Savior, we're not going to say, hallelujah, I was smarter than all those other people. Right? That's not going to be our response. We're going to say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. A wretch like me. 
thank you. And so that should be our, the, the praise of our lips even now, but not only for our own selves, but for one another. Brothers and sisters, if you want to increase your gratitude and love for the Savior, start listening to the stories of faith from one another. I kind of have that built in because I'm a pastor. You know, we, you want to join the church, you got to come in and we get your testimony ahead of time and we get to read it and it's always encouraging. We won't always want to share it with everybody else, but sometimes people aren't there on Sunday. Just think about maybe even your community group. I bet you don't know how everybody in that group came to faith in Christ. That might be a worthy endeavor. If you're meeting tonight, Kirby, you know, uh, there's my group. Uh, maybe have somebody share their testimony. And you spend time just thanking God for each other and the faith that is expressed. Well, when this begins to happen, not only does, do our, our thoughts go vertical and worship to the Lord, but it also that begins to be an encouragement to us, right? That begins to affect us, and that's exactly what we see uh, in verses 9 through 12, that Paul is not only thankful for their faith, but he looks forward to seeing them so he can be encouraged by their faith. Look here at verses 9 and following. He says, For my God is my witness, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Why does he want to get there so bad? Verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul values and treasures the faith of the saints. You all understand that because of the faith that we have in Christ is the really only reason most of us hang out, right? Marianne, you and I probably wouldn't hang out. Well, we don't really hang out that much. Besides Big Blue, we, we probably, you know, wouldn't have much in common. But because we know the Lord... And cherish the things of Christ. She's my sister. My younger sister. And uh, start in verse 9 here. How, how does Paul get here? Paul calls God, in a sense, to testify. This is, he's, he's taking an oath. I swear to God. That's what he's saying here. In a reverent way. That I make mention of you my prayers unceasingly and he says here I serve God in my spirit what's he talking about here he's talking about his inner being he's talking about his inner thoughts he goes I call God to testify who knows that I serve him <coughs> with my whole heart he knows the hidden things about me and he knows what I do in secret which is I pray for you I don't know about you, but when somebody comes and tells me, I want you to know that I pray for you, and they start giving me details. It was on this day, I was praying for you for these things. It's almost a sense like they're telling you to let you know that they're not just saying that. That's incredibly encouraging. And Paul is saying, hey, I, I, I'm far away, 
but you're not far from my heart. And God knows my heart. I have given my life to him. He knows the secret things about me. And I bring him to testify to tell you, I pray for you constantly. So what's Paul's prayer? That God, by God's will, that he would be able to come to them. Look in verse 13. He tells them earlier, he, he wants them to know there's a reason I haven't been able to come to you. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Now, he's probably anticipating the, um, the church wondering, why are you writing us and asking us for money and you haven't been around? I mean, we would probably have the same question if we got, I mean, in fact, I do. I get letters all the time from people. I have no idea who they are, and they want us to give them money, right? <laughs> well, this is what Romans is. It's actually a missionary support letter. But Paul, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the one who's God's instrument to supposedly take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And guess what? The gospel's already come to Rome without him. So, it's been a few years. Where have you been, Paul? I guess you don't think we're that important. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I, I've been prevented from coming to you. What's a prevention? Well, certainly the Lord. <coughs> but those are practical things here. Things such as his missionary journeys. We went through the book of Acts, those of you who are with us. How did those turn out? Paul goes into the town, he preaches, he gets beaten, thrown into jail, spends some time, then he's got to go to the next town and fleeing for his life. And then he'll preach and he'll circle back around, make sure everybody's okay, sneak out again, press repeat, right? Hey, I, I've been a little busy, is what Paul is trying to say here. He'll actually say it later at the end of the book of Romans. I've been ministering from town to town not only that, he's got churches with problems. Imagine that. Think of the church in Corinth, all the issues that he's had to deal with. He, he's trying to minister and get these churches established, and he's, he's trying to get to Rome. And, and now he thinks that he's about to get there, but if you remember our story in the book of Acts, from Acts 21 to Acts 28, what happens? He's arrested in Jerusalem, he's thrown in jail, and he's in prison for about a few years. And he's been told, yep, you're going to get to Rome. And then when he gets on the boat thinking he's going to Rome, what happens? The boat wrecks. I mean, he couldn't just send text message updates. My ETA is three days. You know, th there was nothing like that. This was the letter, I'm trying to get to you. Why does he want to get there so badly? Because I think most of us would say, I guess it's not the Lord's will that I get there. It's been too hard. I'm going to give up. Paul wants to get there because he wants to impart some spiritual gift to them, he says. Again, here's an interesting phrase. When I hear spiritual gift, you know what I think of? I think of a spiritual gift, right? I think of the gift of teaching or, or the gift of hospitality or the gift of service or, or, or gift of tongues or gift of healing. And we think of the list of the spiritual gifts that Paul sometimes lists off and he'll do it in Romans 12 and he'll do it again in, um, in 1 Corinthians 12. But I don't think that's exactly what he's trying to articulate here. 
I don't think he has in mind that in my back pocket, like Santa Claus or something, I've got a gift for you when I arrive. And it's just a spiritual one. And when I get there, you're going to have this new ability. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Because nowhere in Scripture do we find gifts of the Spirit being imparted through human beings. They come from the Spirit of God who dwells in us for everyone who believes. So then why is Paul talking like this? I think what he's talking about here, and and more likely, is he wants to strengthen them with the gospel that was given to him from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear gospel, we often think just the quick, I believed, I'm converted, I'm done with that. But Paul means everything that I'm about to tell you in the book of Romans. That's the gospel. He even concludes the whole book and he says, this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that was given to me by divine revelation. And there's a lot in here. And so he is thankful that they have believed, but here's what we learn. Christians don't graduate from the gospel. And Romans helps us dig into all the trenches and all the intricacies of it. And he says, I have a gift for you. It is the explanation of the full story of the gospel. And in fact, brothers and sisters, as we work through this book over the next uh, uh, year or so, it's my prayer that the Lord would strengthen us. That these things that he is writing to them would be true for us. And in fact, they will be if we give ourselves to these things. So what is it that that this spiritual gift entails? Well, the book of Romans is going to begin to expound upon several items, and I've just summarized six of them. The book of Romans summarizes God's righteous judgment towards sinners. He's going to expound upon that. Gets better. It also tells about God's righteous salvation through faith in Christ. He's going to begin to explore in chapters 5 through 6 and 7 about the freedom that we have in Christ from sin and death. And it leads to righteousness in life. He's going to explain how that happened. How sin came into the world through one man, Adam. And through that one man, death spread to all. But then there was another man, Christ, and through his obedience, life spread to all. He's going to speak of God's plan of redemption. His redemption for Israel. Why does most of the Jews not believe? And then what's God's plan for bringing the nations in? And the end of the age. He's going to give instruction for living peaceably in society and with one another. And then he's going to admonish us to begin to support gospel ministry and missions. That's all, if we want to say, implications, facets of of what we say when we say, I'm committed to the gospel. I'm committed to these things, these truths, these realities. And he spends 16 chapters unpacking them. And so by imparting these things, Paul says to the church, we will be encouraged by your faith. I'm going to come, encourage you, and guess what? I will be encouraged by you as well. This happened for me this week. I went to visit uh, the Breeden family. Many of you know um, David and Sarah Breeden. Uh, they've been prevented from being with us as often as they would like, mainly because of Sarah's health condition. Um, Sarah's been diagnosed with a serious condition that is attacking her nervous system. 
And, um, and she explained to me that the doctor said that even with her medical treatments, which is trying to slow what is occurring, uh, she will likely be in a wheelchair within 10 years. She also explained to me that the treatments that are helping slow this will actually give her cancer. And so it was kind of like, go to the wheelchair now, no cancer. Don't go to the wheelchair now, probably get cancer. It's by options. To top it all off, a couple weeks ago, their son Jacob was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So when he's listening to her explain all this, I'm sitting on their back porch with their whole family, and I simply said to you, how are you guys doing? And, and particularly, I said spiritually, because they answered, oh, we're doing fine, you know, you know, David's able to do this, and they're giving all these earthly answers, and I said, yeah, yeah, I understand that. How are you doing spiritually? How, how are you holding up? To which she responded, she said, so Sarah, I'm really okay because I know that the Lord has a purpose in this and he's control of all things. And whatever he sees fit, if he, if he doesn't heal me, that's okay. I know that he is working this out for new avenues for me to minister the gospel and to make much of Jesus. And here I thought I was going to minister to them. And I'm leaving and I'm like, wow, I'd be a train wreck. This is happening to my wife or this was even happening to me or, or someone else in my family. Same should be true to us. This, this idea that I'm here to encourage you and I will be encouraged mutually when we gather together every Lord's Day, right? When we get together in our community groups. This is why um, the local church is so important, right? We were made for relationships. Paul isn't satisfied with the letter. Notice what he says, verse 11, For I long to see you. There's something about seeing believers and to, to be encouraged by those whom we love. And we've got incredible technological advances. When I leave or I go to Haiti, I'm going to be going, leading a team of 14 in about a month. I will FaceTime with my family most nights. That never satisfies. It doesn't. And neither should merely getting church through a podcast or being at a distance. No, that's not how God has made us. He's made us to be mutually encouraged so that we can hear stories like that that I heard from Sarah Breeden. So that we may be able to encourage one another and see each other's faith in action, working itself out. So when we gather, we're strengthened, aren't we? Sometimes when we're singing, you know what I like to do? Some of you over here probably wonder what I'm doing. I look back because I sit up front and I can't see anybody, and I sometimes just want to see people sing. And it's neat to see and knowing sometimes where you're at and seeing you worship, seeing your, your, your hearts of thanks overflowing. You don't realize that you're encouraging me as I then go to worship as well. So what Paul says to the Philippians, or I mean to the Ephesians, he says that, that we uh, sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in our heart to one another. 
Sometimes we, and it's right, we, our audience is one, the Lord Jesus Christ, but why do we do it together? So that we would encourage one another in each other's faith. And sometimes people think, oh, well, you don't understand. I'm going through a hard time. I don't want to be a, a, um, a burden, so we'll, we'll, we'll withdraw. And what happens is you're not encouraged, and usually you drift away. But what people fail to understand is that when they're not here, they rob us of the encouragement of their faith. It's a two-way street. It's not just on Sunday morning I get to pour into you. I'm encouraged as I see the nonverbals. And some of these too, you know. Um, you know, I, it is an encouragement. And you keep coming back and you have to endure this every week. This will lead to our third point. When we start valuing faith, and I think we do, but let's do so all the more here. We give thanks to God, we're encouraged by one another, but then it pushes us to be eager to proclaim the gospel of Christ. We want to see others come to faith. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 14. Actually, let's go to verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. What's the harvest that he wants? The obedience of faith, verse 5. I want to reap the fruit of seeing the gospel proclaimed among you, with you, us being encouraged, the gospel lived out with us so that we may see more fruit of other people coming to faith in Christ. That's what he's excited about. And so he says, verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says he's under obligation. It's maybe not the term that we like to use when we think of, I'm serving the Lord, or I'm obligated to preach the gospel. He's talking about this in, in kind of a twofold sense. Number one, he's talking about the fact that he's been set apart, Damascus Road, you're my instrument to take the gospel to the nations. Hey, I'm under direct orders. There is a, a real sense here. But because Paul understands the depths and the riches of the gospel, and he understands the consequences for those who do not believe the gospel, he has great burden because he knows the righteous judgment of God for all those who reject Christ. You get a, a sense into his heart in Romans 9 as he begins talking specifically about unbelieving Israelites. These are our brothers, these are sisters, these are family members, these are friends. And he, and he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What's he so burdened about? He says in verse 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. It's chapter 10, verse 1. 
Paul's desire is so overwhelming. He understands Christ giving himself on behalf of others so much that he says, I would be willing to sacrifice and become accursed if that meant that others could come to faith in Christ. I would die for them. How does he get to that point? Because I don't see many or if any of us are saying that. How do you get to that point? You get to that point when you are so enamored with the gospel and you see the true riches and the gift that faith is. And you understand the means by which faith is produced is through the proclamation of the word. Faith comes from hearing, he will say later in chapter 10, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so he says he's under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. This is, uh, this is kind of the lingo of the day in Roman, in Roman culture. Greeks, that's what you wanted to be. You were cultured. Greeks were a superior people group. You don't want to be the barbarians. Think of Conan the Barbarian, you know, if you remember that awful movie <laughs> um, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're primitive. They're barbarian. It's almost like they're bah, bah, bah. They're making fun of them. It's a, a racial slur. He says, it doesn't matter if you are cultured or not. I want to see you come to faith in Christ. He switches it from a different perspective to the wise and the foolish. Whether you are educated or you're not, it doesn't matter. In other words, he's eager to preach the gospel to all peoples. Brothers and sisters, that, we easily say that off our lips, but that is very difficult to do when we see the, depends on which group you're in, whether you're the cultured, it's hard to reach the uncultured. If you're not the cultured, then you often look with disparagement to the cultured and vice versa if you're educated versus the uneducated. And, 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 and I'm just talking about our society and therefore we're at odds with one another. It's easy to vilify each other. Brothers and sisters, here's the good news. We don't have to get caught up in all the politicking. All we have to do is start preaching the gospel to people. And what will happen is what the world says they're trying to do. Bring the world together. They can't. The only means by which that's going to happen is the gospel for which Paul says, I'm not ashamed. It's the power of God to salvation. So this morning, we've seen what it looks like to treasure or value faith. And we want faith. And that's what we, we want out of this morning, both in us and if anyone here does not believe, our prayer is that we would grow in our faith or that if you do not know the Lord Jesus, you would come to faith. And if that happens, you're not going to say, well, that was that preacher. Man, he did it, or that was the music. No, we'd be saying, God, thank you for working in our midst because we're a bunch of fools. That's everything we want. We want faith and then to be encouraged by one another's faith so that then we would be propelled out of here and eager to proclaim the faith to others. With that, let's pray, and then we'll sing a closing song and be dismissed. Dear Lord, I thank you. God, our Father, through our 
Savior Jesus Christ, I thank you for the believers of Oak Park. Lord, apart from your grace, we would be dead in our sins. We would be living for ourselves, blinded to the truth, but yet out of your great abundance of mercy, which was displayed on the cross, and the power of raising Christ from the dead, Lord, you work salvation in our hearts. Thank you. And Lord, I pray that we would never take that for granted, the miracle of salvation. Lord, you raised us from the dead. You gave us new hearts. And Lord, apart from you, we would wander. Our hearts would wander. And how they are easily led astray. But Lord, you keep us, you hold us. And as you remind us, no one will snatch us out of your hand. And so Lord, we thank you. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we leave and as we gather in community groups throughout the week or we meet with one another for lunch, Lord, may we not take for granted the faith that has been granted to us through Christ. And may we encourage one another with these words. And we pray these things with eager expectations. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, let's stand and let's sing.